0: Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Marilyn Johnson.
1: And I'm Patty Vest. After a brief hiatus, we're restarting SageCast with new guests, a new look,
0: and a new host. Welcome, Marilyn. Thanks, Patty. It's great to be here. This season on SageCast, we're talking with a variety of Pomona College faculty about how they came to study what they study, teach what they teach, and love the field they love.
1: Today, we're talking with historian Gary Cates a Pomona faculty member who specializes in the European Enlightenment and the French
0: Revolution. Welcome, Gary. Thanks for joining us. You have a long relationship with Claremont. How'd you find your way here?
2: Well, it all had to do with the teachers' strike in Los Angeles when I was going to an LA public high school. Um, that year, 1969-70, the teachers struck in the spring, and I had nothing to do. And I was I was headed for one of the University of California campuses. Mm-hmm. It was either going to be Santa Cruz or Berkeley, and I had a friend at Pitzer College, hmm. and so I decided to go visit her during this teacher strike. We'll
1: forgive you for Pitzer, that's okay.
2: Yeah, <laughs> and and the, and the I visited her and said, "Wait a minute, this is I had never heard of the Claremont Colleges. I had mm-hmm. grown up in Los Angeles." My father went to UCLA, met Mm -hmm. my mother at UCLA. Mm -hmm. I was headed for the University of California. uh, And lo and behold, I kind of liked Pitzer as an alternative. And and it was among the Claremont colleges. So I visited again and a third time, and then decided to apply, which was late in the spring, Mm -hmm. and somehow got in. And then I joined Pitzer College in the fall of 1970. I was the first class of men in a college that had only begun seven years before Mm -hmm. and had begun Mm -hmm. as an all-women's college. Mm -hmm. I thought, honestly, that would make absolutely no difference, since across the street was then Claremont Men's College, which is today Claremont McKenna, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and next door was Harvey Mudd, which technically has always been co-ed, but in that era was like 95%. Men. Mm-hmm. So I didn't think men on the presence of the Pitzer campus would be a big deal, either to me or to other students. I was wrong. It was a big deal. Huh. I had women come up to me my first week and say to me, I don't want men on this campus. I didn't vote for men on this campus. Wow. You shouldn't be here. Huh. And that was kind of healthy for. A 17, 18 year old guy Uh to hear. So that was my start to Claremont and Pittsburgh. How
1: did you react to that? How did that?
2: It was bizarre. It was interesting. I kind of was the other, and Mm -hmm. I had to put myself in her shoes and in their shoes. And you know, for the first month and a half of that fall semester, students would go into the dining hall. Now, most of the students were women. Mm-hmm. And they would go into the dining hall for breakfast in bathrobes, pajamas, with their hairs and nets and curlers. <laughs> and I had a sister, so...
1: You're used uh, to that. I
2: was used to that. Uh, uh, but by Thanksgiving, that was over.
1: Wow. They
2: came dressed <laughs> and and no curlers. And so I recognized... That my presence and the presence of the 39 other guys was, you know, changing the place for better or worse.
0: Now, you've been friends with Char Miller. Yes. Who you met at Pitzer. That's right. Can you tell us about that?
2: So uh, Char's future wife, Judy, was in the dormitory where I was an RA my sophomore year. Mm. So I first met Judy. Then I went away my junior year and came back and they were a couple. So we met at the beginning of my my senior year and Char's junior year. Mm. And I've known him I mean he's been a he was a close friend immediately and we've never stopped being friends since that time.
1: And for those who don't know Char, he's a professor of history and environmental analysis at Pomona.
0: Right. And there's an article in Pomona College Magazine about your friendship and sharing a house on Indian Hill.
2: Yes, we shared a house at 545 North Indian Hill uh, that senior year. We didn't do it at first, but it was by November we were sharing the house, Um, and I was living with... Lynn, who became and still is my wife, and char was living with Judy, uh, who he's still married to. And although we don't share the same house anymore, we're like uh, a half a mile apart in Claremont. Mm. so uh, and it our our way of staying together, char and I, has been amazing to both of us and Obviously, not something that was planned, but something that just happened.
0: You're both in the field of history. I can only imagine what the conversations were like around the house. (laughs) Tell us about them.
2: Yes, we're very good at boring our children. (laughs) Uh, uh, Well, well, Char is a historian of the U.S. and Mm -hmm. environmental history. And I'm a historian of Europe and mainly cultural and intellectual history. So in some ways... We complement each other, and we love talking to one another about one about the others expertise in fields. Mm-hmm. So I will often in the morning I'll be texting him about an L.A. Times article regarding a fire or an earthquake and asking him his opinion of the article and how it fits into a certain pattern or not. Mm-hmm. Um, or if there's a policy proposal to do X, Y, Z with wind farms or something. Char is my go-to person. Uh, and likewise, he and Judy are planning a trip to Paris for next summer. So we've been talking a lot about that lately.
1: So tell us, how, how did you come back to Pomona?
2: Uh, through good fortune and good luck and the grace of God. I was happily teaching history in San Antonio, Texas, at Trinity University. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I had risen in the administration there from department chair to dean of humanities and arts. And the position of dean of the college came open at Pomona. Mm -hmm. And Lynn and I had kind of decided that we had raised our children in San Antonio, and that was great. But maybe we didn't want to live out the rest of our lives in San Antonio and and that part of the world. So we were eyeing ways to return to Southern California where both of us have have or had then elderly parents. Mm -hmm. And the job of dean of the college came open, and I applied for it, and somehow I got it. The amazing thing about that that I'll always cherish is that I succeeded as Dean Hans Palmer, who was a member of the economics department. While I was a student at Pomona, I took two classes with Hans Palmer. I took Introduction to Economics with him, and then I took the Economic History of Europe with Mm. him. And I so loved his classes. And to be able to reconnect with him... Uh, as he handing the baton off to me was such a pleasure. Mm-hmm. And then Han, Hans, um, who now lives on the East Coast, lived for the next seven, eight years in Claremont. So I got to know him again really well, and he was a resource for me. So that, that really was a uh, is a treasured relationship.
0: How did you happen to get interested in the European Enlightenment and the French Revolution?
2: So... I lived in the era of the 60s when revolutions seemed to be on the tip of the tongue of everyone who seemed to think more clearly than me. And all of these kind of people I was reading or, or the Beatles were talking about that revolutions are around the corner. So I started thinking to myself, how do you know? Like, is... Are we about to have a revolution? What do
1: they know that I I don't
2: know? (laughs) Yeah, what do they know that I don't know? And how do you know when you're in a revolutionary situation? How do you know when your country is going to experience or about to experience or maybe has started to experience uh, a revolution? So that got me interested in the American Revolution and all of them. But I kind of settled on the French Revolution as the big one. And so in college, I just found myself more wanting to know more and more.
0: Are you and fluent in French?
2: I be, I became fluent, um, although now my speaking and writing is more rusty because if you don't use it, you know mm-hmm. it tends to deteriorate. But the reading is still yeah, the reading's still there. Um, uh, but what also what I realized is that the United States in the late 60s was nowhere near a mm-hmm. revolution and so i kind of solved that problem for myself by the end of graduate school mm-hmm. and so then the then i had to explain well then why why did the french revolution happen then mm-hmm. and 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 so that's what kept me going and led me
0: yeah and so, you sh- okay oh, so so tell us
2: well so uh, in you know, so I think we all believe that revolutions occur when the oppressed masses get angry enough that they go out in the streets and insist on overthrowing the government, usually in some violent way. That's not how it usually happens. At least, it didn't happen that way in the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Iranian Revolution, we could go on. The way it really happens most of the time is that the ruling elite loses confidence in their own ability to rule. Mm. They are the first to understand that, or at least a faction within the ruling elite are the first to understand that the system is morally bankrupt. And once that happens, it's... It doesn't make a revolution ine- inevitable, but that's the spark upon which it can spread. And so, I saw that in my own lifetime. Uh, uh, I want to say most recently, but it wasn't really recent when the Soviet Union collapsed mm-hmm. in 1989. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If if you if you remember that the Soviet Union did not collapse because hundreds of thousands of Russians demonstrated in the street and said, we're not going to take it anymore. Mm -hmm. It happened because a reforming faction around Mikhail Gorbachev, they were the ones that had all the facts and said, we're never going to catch up to the West Mm -hmm. with this system. Mm -hmm. And so that's a classic, the way the Soviet Union fell is a kind of classic example of how a ruling elite loses confidence.
0: What's the role of the Enlightenment ideas? as a precursor to revolution?
2: So there's a very old question in European history that you're posing in a certain way, which is, was the French Revolution caused by the radical ideas of the European Enlightenment? Those ideas promoting, say, human rights, um, liberal rule of law, and even the political participation of common people, what we would today call democracy. I actually turn that question around because the problem with that question is it makes the French Revolution the culmination of Enlightenment ideas, and it makes the French Revolution seem superior or more important, more significant than the Enlightenment. Hmm. My way of looking at the Enlightenment Um, And maybe this is a transition to the book I've just published, Mm -hmm. the books that made Mm -hmm. the European Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. My concept of the Enlightenment is that its real significance in history is that it helped create and develop a critical reading public.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: From about 1750 to 1790, throughout Europe, you had a public that was as eager to read Books about political ideas as they were to read novels, mm. poetry, and fiction mm. uh, and that and and it was it was such an interesting era where a book such as Montesquieu's Spirit of the Laws could be a two volumes, a thousand pages could be a coffee table book in the hands of <laughs> Thousands upon thousands of middle-class readers, wow. and th- that doesn't even happen today—at least very much in our own era.
0: Is that what you call an erudite blockbuster yeah. in your book?
2: Yes. Yes. Could that happen today? Well, it 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 can happen today, and the most recent example we've had of it is a book by Thomas Piketty called "Capitalism in the Twenty-First Century." Uh, which is a very academic book, but somehow made its way mm-hmm. into into trade books and and on the shelves of all bookstores. But it doesn't happen today the way it happened in the 18th century, in part because there's so much media and so many other kinds more, of books. Much, much more noise. Much more noise,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, Gary, let's talk a little bit about a different book also, but also your teaching. I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. And one of your books, um, you use role playing games to immerse students um, in the world of the French Revolution. Um, do you still mm. use this approach? Tell oh. us a little bit about that.
2: Well, I was I was brought in as a consultant for for the role playing games, um, and I um, and it was founded by a professor of history at Barnard College,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and. Um, although I consulted with them so that they had the French Revolution part right, I never actually participated okay. in the role-playing mm-hmm. games in my own classes, in part because that was the era when I was dean, mm-hmm. uh, and in part because I teach in a different style. I, 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 I want to do close readings of texts mm-hmm. um, in my classes. And I want to have the students do the close reading of texts. And the role playing is a a very successful model, but of an entirely different pedagogy.
1: So tell us a little bit about your style, close readings. How do you teach?
2: Yeah. So I think of the experience of the classroom as when the coach is in the locker room giving the pep talk to the team, the class that's about to go out on the field. Mm -hmm. I don't think of the classroom time as the moment when the game is actually played.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: I think the classroom is the time to inspire the students and give them the tools so that when they're alone doing the reading, that they get the most out of it and that their minds are the most curious and acute. Hmm. And so I kind of I I think a lot of I think a lot of my students might see the time doing the reading as the time kind of between classes. And I see it kind of the reverse. The most I want the most exciting moments for them to be not when they're listening to me mm-hmm. but when they're listening to their own critical brains try to make sense of this 18th century primary source. They're playing
0: their game after your class. Yeah. <laughs> so so what? how do your students respond to the ideas and the uh, political activity, economic activity of the 18th century, the Enlightenment?
2: Well, Pomona students are just amazing. And they are so resilient— and they're able to take constructive criticism so well, and they're able to push through difficult, both difficult ideas and a lot of reading and a lot of work, that um, that my heart bleeds for them. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think one big difference between teaching in my early career and teaching now has been that the technological advancements that we're all used to, um, uh, word processing, the iPhone, the laptop, all of that has allowed writing to be much more iterative and central to the classroom experience. So let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. When I started teaching in the early 1980s, a student would submit a paper physically to my campus box, Mm -hmm. I might have left for that day, so I would not pick it up until I returned. Then I would return, I would take it home, I would read it. By then, three and a half, four days have gone by. And then returning the paper to the student, I will have read it, but wait a few days until we're back in class to return that paper to the student. So it was clumsy, and took a lot of logistical effort to receive and return physical papers. In today's world, as you, as you all know, because it's not just going on in a classroom, it's going on in all organizations, students are able to email me drafts. I never print them out. I read them online. I use the comment features and the track changes features. It'll go back to them. We may then meet about it. Uh, physically in the office or in the dining halls or at Cafe 47. Uh, But we're meeting about it two days after they wrote it and the revision process then starts. It's, It's just a loop that is not just faster, it allows for uh, the writing process to be seen as iterative, with with drafts and revisions, and I find that the learning process is much more intense and positive and rewarding both for me and the students.
1: I was going to say, there's probably a deeper understanding because they there's not only a process when they're doing the close reading and then you're giving the pep talk for that reading, but there's also a process within the writing that wasn't happening
2: That's before. That's right. It, it, it wasn't happening before, and it didn't happen when I was a student or even a graduate student. Yeah, and I think, I think it's an example that we don't talk about enough of how... Um, new technologies can actually facilitate the very old fashioned liberal arts f- physical relationship mm-hmm. in-person relationship between faculty member and student yeah. mm-hmm. it it's not that it's pulling us away and we're doing distance learning or something and making it more impersonal it 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 actually shines a light and makes and makes the relationship much more special
0: let's go back to your discipline do you think that the ideas that came out of the European and the American Enlightenment um, are still dominating in our world today?
2: Well, l- like Stephen Pinker writes in his book Enlightenment Now, I think we need a lot more of those ideas to dominate uh, or to or to be voiced mm-hmm. uh, with more clarity. Um, One of the things I learned in this recent book, in doing the research for this recent book, is how often an 18th century reader would read a book that they didn't like. Mm. So I have correspondence, uh, say between sisters, that say, I'm going to recommend this book of Voltaire to you. Now, Voltaire, his ideas are abominable. And please don't fall for this part of his, uh-huh. his, but he writes so elegantly and he has such a sense of humor, you have to read him. I think we today have lost in the public, mm-hmm. in the public sphere, reading, er, reading books by people we don't like or agree with. And 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 I I I I'm guilty of that myself.
1: I was gonna say that's a rare thing now. Yeah. To yeah. to hear somebody instead of the correspondence, somebody texting their sister and saying, "Hey, have you read this book? Yeah. His ideas are terrible, but he yeah. writes really well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And and in a sense, that's really what the 18th century public cared about: how well the person wrote. So mm. so a book like Rousseau's Discourse on the Origin of Inequality that put on the map for the first time the issue of inequality as a central problem mm-hmm. so so you say mm-hmm. relevant for today yeah. that book is as relevant for today as it's ever been but people knew quote unquote that Rousseau didn't mean anything he was saying how could somebody how how could somebody r- write such crazy ideas that there shouldn't be inequality. What else is society founded on if not inequality? Uh, but it's so intriguing. It's kind of like science fiction. It's like, wow, he's oh getting gosh. us to think about this in a way nobody ever. So, so there was a lot of reading like that, of almost not taking the authors at face value. Later readers came to understand that Rousseau was dead serious, but, mm-hmm. it, but it took a while.
1: You've mentioned your, casually your latest book. Tell us the title. Tell us more about your latest book.
2: So what I wanted to do in the books that made the European Enlightenment is write a history of the Enlightenment that de-centers the author. The problem with the traditional way of writing about the history of the Enlightenment is that we tend to focus on the major authors and on their ideas as they wrote them and thought them. That's fine. To a historian, it doesn't explain the dispersion of ideas throughout the society. That's what we're interested in intellectual history, cultural history is not just about an innovative and radical idea like Rousseau's views on inequality. It's also about, or should be about, how those ideas affected ordinary European readers in the 18th century. Uh, And so what my book tries to do through looking at 12 case studies of Enlightenment books, is to do a history that treats authors, readers, and publishers on the same playing field.
0: It's kind of like book history meets intellectual history. It's
2: exactly what it is. Book history meets intellectual history. And it's easier said than done because we have so much more information Mm-hmm. about, say, Voltaire or Rousseau than we do about their readers or their publishers. But in the era of the internet, as more and more archival sources are being digitized and there's oh. more and more data available online, it's been able to find just enough on readers and publishers, at least for these case studies, mm-hmm. that you can you can make these uh, these balanced approaches.
0: But with it being online, down does that mean less trips to Paris? It
2: it, it <laughs> means less. It it does. It means less trips to Paris where I'm sitting in the Bibliothèque Nationale de France, and more trips to Paris where my wife and I are cycling. Ah. So 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 that that's what it that's what it really means.
1: That's not a bad trade-off.
2: Uh, but. I'll uh, I'll give you one example of a chapter of how this approach has yielded kind of new new information. So one of my chapters is about a novel written by a woman. Her name was Madame de Graffigny and the novel is called Letters of a Peruvian Woman and it takes an indigenous Peruvian Inca woman and has her travel to France. And it imagines what she thinks of France. Mm. There's a romance that takes place, or a an approaching romance that the reader can say, "Oh, she's going to marry this guy," and then there's another suitor, and oh, maybe she'll marry that guy. So that's the typical 18th century, and she ends up. I'm talking about the character now. Mm -hmm. The character Zelia ends up at the end of the novel saying, "I'm not marrying." any of you, I am staying single because the only way I can maintain my autonomy and therefore my freedom is outside marriage. Oh. So the book, during the 1970s, this book was rediscovered for reasons i don't need to get into, it kind of dropped out of sight. It was a total bestseller at the time, Mm -hmm. but um, it drops out of sight in the 19th century. It's only rediscovered by literary scholars in the 1970s. And with the kind of second wave feminism, it it becomes kind of this... It's taught kind of in every college in the 1980s and 90s as this novel, you see there were feminists then, and this is what they believed. So... So and that's what I thought too, and um, and it is true. And that's what I thought when I began research uh, on this book. But when you look at how the book was published, you actually get a very different story. And here's the story you get: a few years after the novel came out, there was an anonymous sequel that was published mm. that had her marry. Suitor A,
0: huh. is that like fan fiction today?
2: Yes, it, it would be exactly like <laughs> fan fiction today, um, uh, but I'll get I'll get back to that because there's some complicating things in the 18th century about fan fiction, um, and then a few years after that, there's a second sequel in which she marries suitor B. <laughs> so when, when I say marry, they actually end before the wedding, but it's obvious to the reader they they that they're together. together. They end up together. So what I, what I discovered is the following. First of all, novels in the 18th century, at least on the continent of Europe, not necessarily England, are published anonymously. Uh, no author, very few authors put their name on a novel that are living because it's kind of a presumptuous thing to do and it's considered a low form of literature. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's going to change through the century, but mm-hmm. Graffigny published this anonymously. So when, So when publishers attached the sequels to the original publication. Are you with me? Mm -hmm. Because they're all anonymous, the reader was not aware that it was written by two different authors. Uh So Uh 80% of the publications of this book are joined with one of the sequels or both of the sequels (laughs) because that's what the public wanted. So... Readers did not read the novel at the time as heck. No, I'm staying single. I'm autonomous. Mm-hmm. That was just a moment in the middle of the story until she found suitor A or suitor B. Of the that was the
1: cliffhanger of the season. That's ending. right.
2: It goes. It goes back to a more conservative, uh, romantic,
1: more appropriate story
2: yeah and and oh, and and, wow. and and so by looking not so much at the author's views and what the author intended mm-hmm. but in this case looking primarily at the publishers and how they were mediating between author and reader you can really get a very different narrative
0: hmm. Are we still committed to the ideals that came out of the Enlightenment, individual liberty, laissez-faire, the possibility of progress, religious tolerance, or are those changing in our modern age?
2: Well, they're definitely changing. They should change. We want them to change. Ideas in history are never timeless. What we mean by liberty is always going to be different than what someone in the 18th century meant by liberty. Um, when we say, for example, that we have freedom, can you have, can you be free if you don't exercise the vote? Can you be free if you're not involved in local politics? If you don't go to your city council meeting and say that you either want composting or you don't want composting, um, that was the That was the normative understanding of freedom from the ancients uh, and many in the 18th century. It was Rousseau's understanding of freedom. But there's an entirely different meaning of freedom, which is, don't bother me. I don't want to be bothered. Just let me do what I want. Just, I I I want my home. I want to know that I'll have it. I want enough food, but I want the government to go away and not bother me. That's a completely different concept of freedom. And so they're both being contested in the Enlightenment. So the Enlightenment does not hand us kind of one set of values um, that we need to read kind of like the Bible uh, uh, and that some of us are more observant than others. Um, The Enlightenment, I think, is a... Process of how, as a society, uh, we're going to negotiate and address these very important political issues. Until the Enlightenment, these issues were mainly sorted out in in royal courts and churches, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the Enlightenment becomes. Not a prescriptive set of values that you must think this about freedom and equality, but rather, oh, there is this thing called civil society. And think of the churches and the royal courts as there but on the margins. Now, how are we going to figure this out for ourselves? That's, that's, That's the zone of the enlightenment
0: your life of studying a very tumultuous time, what worries you about our world today?
2: Oh, my.
0: And what gives you cause for optimism?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Just a little well, like question. Well,
2: sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's lots of things that give me cause for optimism. And I think my friends would say I'm I'm way too much of an optimist, even in a dark age like the one we're living in. Uh, one thing that gives me optimism is the if 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 you if you think about the enormous changes in the the rise out of poverty of such a high percentage of human beings in the last uh, seventy five years, mostly in Asia. I mean, it's not equally distributed around the world. But I think in terms of looking globally, there's, there's much to be optimistic about when you think of the reduction of poverty. Um, of course, the values of liberal democracy in the United States, which in the U.S. we've been taking for granted, mm-hmm. are now being tested in a way that they certainly have not been uh, in my lifetime. And it does make enlightenment practices, enlightenment thinking about civil society, enlightenment thinking about disinformation and critical reading, um, it really goes to the heart of making the enlightenment relevant for today uh, in, in a way that maybe 10 or 15 years ago I thought what I taught was, I don't know, rather stale and old-fashioned. And, and now it does seem... Uh, for not the best of reasons, to be more relevant than ever,
1: and not only the U.S. but so many other parts of the world, are, y- yes. their democracies are. Yes. When you thought it was isolated, well, we may have thought yes, is.
2: yes. Although, and in and in that way, when especially when I think of other places in the world, I I remember in 1990, um, we sent uh, a run of the American Historical Review. Uh, in boxes, uh, like 20 boxes, and spent like $500 doing this to um, a university in Hungary because they had recently come out of the Iron Curtain and were free, and they basically wanted everything they could get. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you think of the what that took to bring them those print copies, and now what is available everywhere mm-hmm. um, either by hook or by crook mm-hmm. to for <laughs> someone to get their hands on right. information there I'm very optimistic and so we we tend to we tend to worry about the disinformation effects of social media globally mm-hmm. and they're real mm-hmm. uh, but at the same time uh, more people have more access to Information globally than ever before. That's very exciting. I'm going to change
1: <laughs> topics again. <laughs> Gary, we're we're recording this at KSBC Studios, at, at Pomona, and this is not your. What can you tell us? When was your first time sure, at sure. KSBC?
2: Well, I always yeah. enjoy coming back to the KSBC studios because I was a DJ for KSBC. Uh, my freshman and sophomore years of college, and it was I had a late night show. It was such a great experience. We were then in something called the Replica House, which is kind of where the art building mm-hmm. sits today on the mm-hmm. Pomona campus. It was a tiny little cottage, uh, um, kind of really homey, and I remember what what I distinctly remember about the show is that 11 p.m., 12 midnight, high school kids from El Monte, Fullerton, um, West Covina would call in Mm -hmm. to request songs. It wasn't so much, I mean, you'd think it would be my college buddies and friends would be the (laughs) only ones listening. But I really saw then that KSPC was a vibrant station for high schoolers wanting to hear what these college kids like, what because you know we decided what music we were playing. Nobody uh-huh. told us uh-huh. what music they were going to play, and so that that was a wonderful. You experience. had
1: quite the reach.
2: <laughs> it felt that way then, <laughs> <laughs> probably more than now.
1: On that optimistic note, <laughs> we're gonna wrap this up. Um, our thanks to Gary Cates. Now I'm going to say your full title now. The H. Russell Smith Foundation Chair in the Social
0: Sciences and Professor of History for enlightening us today. And to everyone listening, thanks for joining us on SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Till next time.